Beautiful. The next few weeks will be about Moses. Uh, we'll tell you Moses' story as briefly as we can. He uh, has ownership of a lot of the Old Testament writings, so uh, we could stay on Moses for a while. But we'll try to, two or three weeks, I think we can tell the story of Moses, the writer of Hebrews, which I'll get to about mid-sermon, his quote, quotes several things about Moses that he wants you to know. That whole section on Moses opens up the, the idea of courageous faith. So I want you to have this back in your mind. Courageous faith. Not faith like I go to church on Sunday. Courageous faith. Faith that risks lives. Faith that challenges things. Big faith uh, that is courageous while you're persevering through trials, through persecution, through opposition. That's the type of faith that's about to be described in the book of Hebrews. Let me see if I can start from where I stand this morning. Uh, My parents are devout followers of Jesus Christ, always have been as long as I've known them. They were followers of Christ long before uh, they had a family. So my whole life, the only thing I've known in my parents is that they were devout followers of Jesus Christ. But there came a time in my life when I had to take ownership of my own faith. I've always known my parents had faith and were followers of Christ. Please hear what I'm saying. But there came a time when I had to make some decisions about my own life. Their faith is awesome, But at some point, I have to decide if I'm going to have my own faith. And uh, many of you are at those stages of life where you're seeing who your parents are and who, who your leaders are around you and who your peers are, and you're trying to sort all of this out. And you're seeing people of strong faith, but you're wrestling with, okay, what does that mean for me? At what point am I going to own my own faith? At some point, you have to ask yourself, as I did, are my beliefs really mine? What, what, what I'm portraying right now, what I'm living out right now, are those my own convictions, my own beliefs that I hold, or is that kind of a borrowed faith? I mean, I, I do what I do, and I say I believe what I believe, because I know that's what my parents want me to say, or my youth leader wants me to say, or my pastor wants me to say, or somebody I admire in my life. I want you to wrestle with that this morning because ownership changes the way we feel. Just in general statement now. Ownership changes the way we feel. Ownership creates emotions in in us, uh, emotions like joy and love, emotions like responsibility and and care. Uh, Ownership is a whole different thing than renting. Uh, ownership changes the way we think. The way we think about something we own is completely different than the way we think about something that isn't ours. Uh, I'll just see if I can cut right through to the chase here this morning. We care more about our own stuff than we do other stuff. You care more about your stuff than you care about other stuff. We take better care of our own stuff than we do rented stuff. Have you ever rented a car? Yeah, you'll take that thing right over the curb. It's not yours. You know what I'm saying? Uh, You'll drive that like you stole it. Uh, You're just renting. You're going to return it later. You bought the insurance. It's going back to them. Now, I don't mean to be completely irresponsible. I'm just trying to illustrate You've rented a house, perhaps. You didn't remodel it. It's not yours. You're just living there for a little while, and you want it to be nice, but you don't have the pride of ownership. You don't have the care to upgrade it and make it as beautiful and wring out and bring out and cultivate all of its potential because it's not yours. So you treat it in a different way. What we really, what, what we own really matters to us. Now I want you to think about those truths because the attitudes connected to ownership 
of stuff can also be applied to life in many ways. I, I, I noted that Americans are crazy about their pets for sure. And many who own dogs or cats treat them as if they're human. Now, I don't fault them for this. I understand it. Because when you own something and you live with that something every day, you begin to talk to it as if it understands English. And uh, you, you, you treat it as if it has the full scope of human emotions. And, oh, are you sad? Oh, baby, you And you just begin to, as if it were a full human being with comprehension, language skills, and, and, and a goals for life, and, and uh, you know, a purpose for living. We project that onto it, and the connection we make to our pets is profound because we have that sense of ownership. There are emotions tied to ownership. When our soldiers go off to fight a war for our country, they are willing to fight and die for America because precisely it is their country. That is what... You say, why would someone do that? It's their country. That's why. Uh, There are emotions and feelings connected to ownership. This is why you've been hearing the president of Ukraine say... I don't need transportation. I need ammunition. What is he saying? This is my country. These are my people. I will defend this and die right here. You say, why would someone say that? Ownership. He's taken ownership. And the people have taken ownership of the country. And they're saying, these are our homes and our land and we will defend it. So when people are defending their families, they're defending them because they're their families. That is the whole point. It's their land and their loved ones. Now, parents feel a deep sense of ownership for their children in the same way. They are yours. Now, I know they're going to be independent of you at some day, and that is the goal. Uh, and I don't want to preach a whole sermon on when you get adult parents... Take your hands off of them. That's a whole other sermon. It's not this morning's. But sometimes I see a lot of things that trouble me. Quit trying to control your adult children. They're adults. Love them, pray for them, be there for them. The whole goal is to make adults out of them. And then take your hands off of them, and therefore shall a, a man and a woman come together and leave their parents, and they'll be their own own unit. You'll always be there to support them and guide them. You say, well, they're not living for the Lord. I know, and you don't have to tell them. They know you disapprove already. Don't they? So you don't have to tell them every time you see them. Hey, it's good to see you again. I disapprove of your lifestyle. You don't have to say that. They already know. But I I don't have time to preach the whole how to rear adults uh, lesson because I'm dealing with little kids this morning. And what I'm saying this morning is something that's yours is more important than something that's not yours. Can you at least agree with me on that? You may not know where I'm going, but will you at least agree with me on that? Something that's yours is more important than something that's not yours. You don't care how somebody else spends their money, but you care how you spend yours because it's your money. That's all I'm saying this morning. So when it comes to faith, now I want to challenge you. Maybe you've only borrowed your faith. Maybe you've never really taken ownership of it. And your faith isn't your own. Maybe the faith that you have is inherited faith from mom or dad or from friends or or, or from a mentor. Maybe you took that faith out of obligation to someone you love and pretended to make it your faith just because you didn't want to offend someone who, who you love and respect in your life. And what that really does is it makes that someone you're trying to please the God of your life. Or maybe you're renting your faith. Yeah, you've got it for a little while. It's just a temporary setup. You're making some payments on it. And and you'll keep with your faith until you're ready to stop making payments on it. And because it's not owned faith, it's only rented faith, it's really easy to walk away from. Does that make sense? It's really easy. You don't want to walk away from a house that you own. You, you rent it. Things go south for you. You just walk away. You just walk away. You say, well, they'll get my deposit. Yeah, whatever. Walk away. Move on to the next thing. 
Drive it like you stole it, return it at the Hertz dealership, walk away. You don't own it. And a lot of people are treating their faith this way. It's not really theirs. They've got it. They're going through some motions. It looks like faith. But is it really owned by you? Many are pursuing, and I don't really know, you know, we used to call this a Luby's faith, cafeteria-style faith, but I don't know if anybody even knows what that is anymore. Uh, then I started calling it Build-A-Bear faith. Is that still a thing anymore, Build-A-Bear? Are they still in business? Okay, so let's just stay with that this morning. Many people have a Build-A-Bear kind of faith, where you just get your base package of the stuffed bear, and then you start accessorizing. And what that looks like is people in our culture taking the best aspects of Christianity, God is love, and now combining that with humanism and some aspects of atheism and some aspects of Buddhism and some aspects of Hinduism and some aspects of pantheism and some aspects of whateverism, and you put it all together. And well, the word for that is syncretism. You're syncing up a bunch of different religious beliefs, kind of a, just a cafeteria, build a bear. Yeah, I'll take this. Yeah, put him in the sailor's outfit. Yeah, I gave him a saxophone. Yeah, let's put some pink boots on him. And you just kind of build your own little faith the way you want to build it but the problem with that is and that makes you god if you can design god then you're bigger than god and this is one of the things that we taught in the apostles creed series i believe in god the father creator of heaven and earth i believe in jesus christ his only son our lord i believe in the holy spirit and the reason that's so important is that's how god revealed himself and jeremy thank you for introducing new songs to us that are trinitarian in approach which you just sang that just that just rang out to me like anything a few minutes ago. Very few songs deal with that three-in-one aspect of God as He's presented Himself in the Word of God. And that's the way He must be worshipped as He has revealed Himself, not as we invent Him to be. God is not how you imagine Him. He is how He is. And how He is is then revealed to us through the Word of God. Well... One of the things that's amazing around here is when we see young adults owning their own faith, when we see 21, 22, 23-year-old, 24-year-old, 25-year-old young adults owning their own faith here at Cornerstone, we as a community of believers are experiencing something supernatural take place here. And we see it week by week here where young adults come of age and they're making their own decisions and they're like, and here's the decision I make, to serve God, to make disciples, to get on mission, to to be who uh, you you have raised me to be. Listen, my my heart just been about to burst in the last few weeks. Brenna came home from university, graduated, you know, with honors, already has a a nice uh, job teaching here in the public school system, and re-engaged with her church volunteered to work in the youth department and already ready to make disciples again listen my heart wants to burst when i see that lauren graduates from college comes right home waiting for her next steps in life and while she's waiting for whatever's next you know what she does she plugs right back into church volunteers and starts my heart wants to burst sean i see proud mom there she's owned her own faith and when she owns her own faith you and nathan have won That is the whole game right there. To rear children who become adults who then when they have the ability to choose don't return the rent of faith at the counter but instead say, no, I'm keeping the keys to that. That's my own faith and now I'm going to live it out the rest of my life. Win for the whole community of faith then. So I want everyone to know what the the goal is and what what the big picture is here. And I'm really burdened for young adults because when you leave home uh, from those who have led you in faith, your faith's going to be tested for sure. In other words, when, when you go out of the home of faith and begin your own adult journey at the university or, or trade school or taking that job or whatever you do, one of the things we can guarantee you will happen is that your faith will be tested And so one of the thesis questions, I'd really like you to think about this for a couple of weeks, is what do you believe because you believe it to be true? I'm not asking what do mom and dad believe. What do you believe because you believe it to be true? 
And I'd love you to have some answers to that question. I know what my mom and dad believe, and I've known all my life what they believe. But there came a point in my life where I had decided what I believe. Now, I don't want to disappoint my mom and dad, but neither would I live a lie all my life in order to please them. I have to decide what I'm going to believe and who I'm going to be, and I have to take ownership of my faith. So I'm simply asking you this morning, what do you believe? And what do you believe so deeply because it's what you believe and not what other people around you believe? Now, with that setting in your heart, I want to take you to a biblical story now. I'm going to take you to the book of Exodus. Jeremy did a masterful job teaching you the story of Joseph. And he took him all the way from a child, all the way to the prime minister of Egypt last week. And when we ended the story last week, you have Joseph, the prime minister. He has the king's ring on his hand. He rides in the number two, uh, we call that Air Force Two uh, chariot. And uh, he's second only to the, to the king, Pharaoh, in the country of Egypt. He's running the show. Pharaoh's playing golf. Joseph is running the country. We kind of need some of that today, don't we? Anyway, uh, 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 and Joseph was brilliant as a political leader, and God had raised him for that moment. He brought his family down to Egypt, remember that? And he gave them a place to live. And uh, so when the story ends, they're no longer in the promised land. Now they're down in Egypt as cowboys, tending herds and, and rearing up uh, flocks uh, in the pasture land of the Nile Delta. And Joseph is running interference. He is the prime minister. Nobody's going to touch a hair on their head. They're his family. He's going to protect them. But then the story moves forward quickly in the book of Exodus. I'm reading now, and I'll give you the setting, where God's people multiply. Watch this, Exodus 1-6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. One generation passes, another's coming, another's coming. It never stops. That's the setting. Moses is the author of these words. Joseph and brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, and they multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers. They became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Okay, you got the picture. So they went down into Egypt, 70 souls, the Bible says. Uh, Israel, Jacob, his name's Israel now, and the children of Israel, the 12 tribes and their wives and their children and Joseph, and now they start multiplying. Now they're turning into millions of people, okay? I don't want you to see a few. I want you to see like the city of Dallas, okay? I want you to see city of Fort Worth. Millions of people are multiplying. Verse 8, then a new king, a new Pharaoh, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came into power. The old KJV, I think, reads, Then a king arose which knew not Joseph. You get a whole new uh, regime comes in and changes the entire course of the nation and changes the entire policy of the country. Joseph has led them to prosperity, but now the regime has changed, and this regime is hostile to God's people. Nonetheless, they have multiplied, which brings us to setting number two. God's people were then enslaved. Verse 9. So now here's the king. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them, over the Israelites, over the Hebrews, to oppress them with forced labor. And these slave laborers, God's people, built Python and Ramses as the store city for Pharaoh. So some of the great works of Egypt that you know about were probably built by the slave labor of the children of God. God's people, okay? They are now an enslaved people. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Verse 13, and they worked them, what? Ruthlessly. Slave labor, oppression, ruthless taskmasters. This is the language 
that Moses is giving you. Why would Moses know? Because he's the prince of Egypt. He would know. So I want you to know you're getting a first-hand telling of this story. Verse 14, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Slave labor camps. Okay, that's the picture I want you to have in your mind. So God's people multiplied. God's people were then enslaved. And then the third thing is God's people were oppressed through infanticide. Now I'm just giving you the quick setting. God's people were oppressed through infanticide. If that's not a word you're familiar with, it means the murdering of babies. Infanticide. Exodus 1.22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the river Nile. But every girl, you can let the girls live. Now, you can sort all of that out in your mind as to why one and not the other. Pharaoh had some use for the girls, obviously, but the boys, he wanted them all dead. So he said, here's the orders I'm giving. I want every baby boy that's born to be thrown in the river Nile. So now here's the question for you, because you're reading about God's people. This whole story is about God doesn't have a people, God wants a people, God calls Abraham and makes a people, okay? And then he gives a promise to his people that I'm going to multiply you and be with you, I'm never going to leave you. And then the story, Jacob's a con man who gets conned, but then his daughters con everybody, and then everybody gets conned. And in the end, Jacob gets his heart right and says, I really want to be God's people. Will you be my God? I want to be your people. And God says, yes, the promise I gave to your father and to your grandfather, I keep it with you, and I'll keep it to the generations uh, uh, that keep coming. And then Joseph, his, his next youngest son, and the story keeps going. The, the big story here is that God has a people, and now those people are in, multiplying, those people are enslaved, and those people are being persecuted. They're, they're being oppressed through infanticide. Someone's trying to eradicate the Jews. Does this sound familiar at all? Does this sound something like 1938 through about 1945? When, which is fresh, more fresh in your mind than this story about how someone rose up to purge the Jews from the continent of Europe. You say, why? It's like the same evil plot being played out over and over again. And if you think that, you'd be correct. You say, why? Because God has a people and Satan would be thrilled to wipe them out. That's how simple it is. Don't make it more complicated. God has a people, and those people are in a real battle uh, for their faith and for their life and for control of planet Earth. But you know what? You get it in the end. God's already promised you the victory. He's already promised that you win. This really confusing book of Revelation that you have over here at the end of your Bible, this is what it's all about. It's about resisting oppression and persecution because you've already won. The Lamb has come. He's laid down His life. He is worthy to open the book. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And they overcame by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. And they loved not their lives unto death. But the Lamb helped them win the victory and the earth belongs to God's people. That's the big story that's happening. But in the meanwhile, all these evil Pharaoh type people tend to rise up and they try to oppress and eradicate God's people. So when, what are God's people to do when we find ourselves in a traumatic situation? Especially a situation like you're seeing play out on the world today. Situations that are totally and completely out of your control. What are God's people supposed to do when you're in a traumatic circumstance and it's totally out of your control? Well, this is why we're studying Hebrews 11. Here's the answer to that question. God's people live by faith. That's just as simple as it is. God's people live by faith. You remember what faith is? It's believing in a God you can't see. It's believing that His Word is true and that what will come to pass is exactly what God said will come to pass. When you live your life... In faith, you're living as though you understand God is real. He is never going to leave you. And he's calling upon you to live by faith and trust that the unseen God is present with you at all times. If you're a child of God, he is in you at all times. He will never leave you. He hears your prayers. He hears your cries. He knows what's going on. Live your life believing that God is right here and he's involved in the story. Now, the biblical story moves really quickly. 
uh, from, from Joseph forward. It's like they hit fast forward on the, on the playback, whoop, and, and, and now it just goes leaps forward, and the setting changes from Joseph and the palace to this evil regime, and it fast forwards to a little slave cottage. And in this slave home, we find a mother and a couple of kids. And like endless vignettes that you're seeing on the evening news, depicting women and children traumatized, not knowing where their father is, that's what I get in my mind when I see this vignette in the Word of God. So I want to say to you, whether you have children presently, whether you're planning to have children, whether you're planning to have more children, or even if you don't and you never intend to, the love of Christ compels you to feel what these families are feeling. You say, well, I don't have kids and it's hard for me to... Listen, surely you can feel what these families are feeling in their distress. So let me ask the parents something before I launch into this next section of my message. What is it as parents that you're aiming for in your children? Uh, as a parent raising children, you know, you may have little ones, you may have big ones, you may have grown ones. What are you aiming for? What are your goals as a parent for your children? Most of the parents I talk to say, well, my goals are I just want my kids to stay off drugs. I want them to do good in school. I, I want them to be honest and, and kind people and, and, you know, not get addicted to alcohol. And, you know, I, ju- I just want them to be good citizens and, and productive to society Man, I just really want my kids to turn out right. And I admire that. And when I hear Christians talking like that, I'm with you, I get you, I'm cheering for you. But I want to question, have you gone far enough? Because if your goal for your kids is, well, I just want to stay off drugs and be productive and be good people and make the world a better place, isn't that exactly what Hindus would say about their children? Isn't that exactly what Muslims would say about their children? Isn't that exactly what Buddhists would say about their children? Well, let me ask you even a harder question. Isn't that exactly what atheists would say about their children? Okay, while those are good goals, and I think those should be on your list, do you not have greater goals than those goals? Yes, I want my kid to be loving and kind and productive and bless the world. Come on, keep going. Don't stop there. I just want to keep cheering. You're almost there now. Keep, keep going uh, a little bit further with what your goals are. Uh, At Cornerstone, our goal is to assist you in becoming great Christian parents. What we are aiming for here is we are aiming for children who have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, who are following Christ because they want to follow Christ, not because their parents make them follow Christ. What we're looking for is to raise up a generation of teenagers and young adults who know the Holy Spirit is living in their heart and they are being transformed by the Holy Spirit week by week of their life. They're hearing the voice of God. They're responding to the voice of God. Our goal is to raise up a group of young adults who know how they were saved, why they were saved, and how to show somebody else how to be saved. I mean, that's the real end game here. Our goal is to raise up, as I was talking about some of our own uh, uh, young people here who are now our adults, our goal is for those young adults now to be disciple makers in their community and in their church and to, to, to be able to be a light shining wherever God places them in their career. We want to raise up a generation of young adults who have owned their own faith and they know how, as a young adult, to reproduce their faith into another Christian disciple or someone in their circle of influence. Now, I want to be real honest with you. I I was very concerned about what my kids were going to pursue as they got ready to leave the university and start making their own decisions. I am concerned, but I want to say it a different way. It matters not to us if our sons and daughters become doctors or lawyers or politicians or judges, or teachers, or welders, or carpenters, or mechanics, or engineers. What really matters to us is will they turn into adults who have their own faith and who are on the mission of making disciples for Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate for a parent. Their vocation will be their vocation, but will their faith be their own faith? 
That's that deeper level that we're aiming for. Your children are going out into the world. That is inevitable. And when I'm coaching, and Susan is, when we are coaching parents privately, and parents are trying to lock onto their kids and, and, and never let them go, we're like, no, you're doing it backwards. Stop that. The whole parenting process is to hold them when they're little and then begin to let go of them as they get older and finally, bye. Out of the nest you go. That's the process. And I watch parents trying to hang on more tightly as they mature. No, you have to loosen your hold as they mature. Your children are going out into the world. That's inevitable. Absolutely inevitable and unstoppable. And you should not be fighting against that. Even if you could stop them from going out into the world, why would you? Because that's the way that Christianity is spread. That's the way that disciples are multiplied. That's the way that, that, that families expand and the kingdom of God expands. We want you all to go out of your parents' home and find your own way and make your own disciples. That's exactly what God's calling us to do. I think the pressing issue for parents is this. Have we prepared our children to go out into the world? Now this is what parents need to be wrestling. Am I preparing them to go out into the world? Have I done? And I want you to know, I, I feel like uh, Susan did a great job as a parent. I'll use her, that way I'm not bragging on myself. I feel like Susan did a great job as a parent. And uh, yet, when she got ready to take Andrew and Jack to the dormitory at their respective universities and drop them off, we, we got back in the car. And you know what our conversation was on the way home? Susan started to cry. And she's like, I'm just thinking about what did we forget to teach them? Have we taught them everything they need to know now? To be their own men. And I, I, I think this is the answer that we came to. You don't have to teach them everything. That's not possible. But you ground them well enough that they can figure everything out. God will take them the rest of the way. He will always be with them. Have you prepared your children to go out into the world? And I guess the second question all parents want to ask is this. At what age do I want them to experience anti-Christian culture? I'm like, over here, you got little guys. And this is kind of your question. You're like, okay, forget this college talk. That's a million years away. But I'm raising little ones in my home. And at what point do I want them to see what the world's really like? At what point do I want my little ones exposed to an anti-Christian culture? Now, here's the answer. The answer is only you can answer that. Because the answer varies from family to family. And it is not the position of the church to tell you every one of these answers. That doesn't work. Only you as the parents can answer those two questions. At what age do I want them exposed? Well, then you, you decide that together as a family. And uh, in our case, that's all I can tell you about is our case, we chose to expose our sons to an anti-Christian culture while they were children in our home. Our thinking was this. We don't want to wait. We don't want to shelter them in a bubble. And then when they get to be 17, 18, 19, send them off to, you know, the best university that, you know, we can afford. And all of a sudden they're faced with the world in all of its glory. It, matter of fact, in all of its excess. Okay? We'd much rather expose them to the way the world is while they live in our home. That way mom and dad are right there by their side the whole way. And then we can sit at the kitchen table at night and say... Okay, so what about your friend who just got busted for, you know, having some drugs in his locker? Okay, what about that thing that happened at school? Okay, then you're navigating all of those issues while your children are right there in your home and you can steer them, it's not like driver's ed, you can show them how it's done and you can show them, there's some, pit, there's some uh, potholes right here. You want to steer around those because you don't want to run off from that. You can do some serious damage to your life to your psyche, to your mind, to your body. And so we're going to help you navigate what life looks like with mom and dad by your side. Because soon enough, they're going to go out on their own. And when they do, these anti-Christian aspects of our culture will not be a shock to them. They'll go off and say, yeah, that's exactly, yeah, yeah, I've seen that already. 
Yep, so saw that right here at my junior high and my high school. It's just on steroids now, but I know how to deal with this. And so you're going to have to answer the question, at what age should I expose them to culture? But I want to warn you, and this is really the story of Moses. The answer to that question is not always in your control. You say, okay, I've got a plan in my mind. You know, when they're 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, here's what I'm going to expose them to. But then sometimes you're not in control. And sometimes your kids get exposed to things you wish they weren't exposed to before you plan for them to be exposed to it. And all of a sudden you're going to be sitting them down saying, now where did you hear that word? And what do you think that means? Should we look it up and see what it means? And, and you just, you understand, that's little stuff. But it's a lot bigger stuff coming. And this is the story of Moses. One of the most extreme biblical examples was a descendant of Abraham. Her name is Jochebed. Jochebed is what it looks like in your Bible. Jochebed. It is a slave mother living in a little slave hut trying to rear her two children in an Egyptian pagan culture that is hostile to God's people. She's a descendant of Abraham. She is God's people. And she's trying to rear her family in a culture that's hostile to God's people. Jochebed, as I said, already has two children she's raising. She has a teenage girl named Miriam. She has what I think is probably a preschool age boy named Aaron. She has her hands full with two kids. And if you have two, you understand that statement. But now she finds herself about to give birth to number three. Things are about to get a little more complicated. Not only that, she's about to give birth to number three in an environment characterized by this edict of Pharaoh. I'm going to read it again, verse 22. Pharaoh gave an order and said, Every Hebrew boy, throw him into the Nile. So the birth of a baby boy, well, let me just say it this way. The birth of a baby is supposed to be a happy time. I'm watching you guys on Facebook with all your friends gathered around and you're doing gender reveals and, and blowing confetti in the air and popping balloons and all kinds of things and everybody's laughing and everybody's having a good time and people are having showers and, and, and you're painting nurseries and it's just a time of joy in your life when children are coming into your home. It was not so with Jochebed. Because of the edict of Pharaoh, when she realized she was pregnant, it was nine months of sheer terror, saying, I don't know what's going to happen to my child. And for the entire pregnancy, in an era of no sonogram, you're asking yourself the same question on a loop over and over. Oh, man, I hope it's not a boy. Oh, man, I hope it's not a boy. Do you think it's a boy? It doesn't feel like a boy. I'm carrying him lower. I'm carrying him sideways. I can feel him up under my ribs. He's on my bladder. Surely, no, when Aaron, he was like this. But with Miriam, it was like this. And you're trying to talk yourself into the fact that it's just not going to be a boy the whole time. Can you imagine? You say, why? Well, if it's a boy, they're going to kill it. That's how simple it is. And so the time comes for her delivery. Let me fast forward the story. And the midwife comes to help her deliver it's a very wild reading. If you want to read it over in the early chapters of Exodus, it's wild reading. They don't birth laying on their back in a hospital bed. They birth in the home when a midwife comes sitting on a stool. And so you'll learn all about birthing stools as you read the book of Exodus. And uh, so she's birthing, she's pushing, and the midwife is there. And, and when the baby is born, with cracked voice, the midwife says, Jochebed, I'm so sorry. It's a boy. Sure enough, it's a boy. And from that moment, she says, my baby is in danger. The pagan world has laid cold on claim on his life. And I'm not going to give my baby to this world. I'm not going to give my baby to the, to the River Nile. I am not going to give my baby to Pharaoh's edict. I'm going to exercise my faith courageous faith and I'm going to defy the powers that be and I'm going to persevere under whatever persecution comes they will not get my baby that's courageous faith do you understand why the writer of Hebrews now is looking back and he tells the story of Moses but his whole first example in the book of Hebrews is not about Moses it's about Jochebed the mother of Moses and her incredible courageous faith Parents must have courageous faith. Point. Big point, okay? Parents must have courageous faith. Let me read you now from Hebrews. Hebrews eleven twenty three. By faith, Moses' parents hid him 
for three months after he was born. Yeah, you can keep a baby quiet for a while, but eventually that baby's going to find its lungs, right? Just hang out here long enough. We'll have a few find their lungs back here in the right section, okay? You're left. They'll find their lungs in a minute. And listen, you can, you can only keep a baby hidden so long. And little Moses began to find his lungs, and they're like, no, 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 no. You, you can't make any noise. But that doesn't work, and you know that doesn't work. And after three months, they're like, the inevitable is coming. The baby is going to be discovered. They're going to murder the child. By faith, they hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. That's courageous faith. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. When the, when the government says kill the baby, then you say, okay, you've crossed a line with my faith and my God now. The answer is no, I will resist you and courageously stand on my convictions against you. And I, will, and I know you have all the power, you hold all the cards, and you'll probably kill us all, but I defy you and I will stand against you. My faith compels me to, my faith is real, I believe there's a God, I believe we are His people, I believe He's with us, I believe He's watching us, and so I defy you. My God will deliver me, but if He doesn't, I still defy you because it's the right thing to do. Oh, I love this gal, she's got grit, man, she's got grit. When you consider her circumstance, let me give you just a couple of quick guidelines. Parents, encourage your child's relationship with Christ. This is your role. Children are not accidents. Children are not mistakes. God has a plan and a purpose for every one. And her actions that she's about to employ, her actions speak volumes about her faith. What she's saying by what she's about to do is she's saying, I believe this baby is a precious life, a gift from God, and I believe according to God's edict that we are His people, that even my poor slave baby boy has a plan, has a purpose in the plan of God. I believe that my boy could change the world. And what I'm saying to you this morning is that's what you parents should be saying as well. I believe my child can change the world for good. I believe my child can make a difference in someone's life. I pulled Letty and Stephanie together this morning and I said, I want to tell you a quick story. And I told them a story about a women's conference we did five years ago, probably. Four or five years ago, we've been in COVID for two, old lady, good night. And four or five years ago, we did a women's conference in Mexico. You never know if that matters or not. And this week, we got word through Steve McCoy at Small Circle. He said, man, we've got two fantastic disciple makers down here in Saltillo, Mexico, and they are setting the world on fire. And he sent me a picture, and he said, I just want you, you know, if you ever get a chance in Mexico, meet these two people. I said, Steve McCoy, I recognize those two people. That woman taught her husband how to make disciples because that woman went to Stephanie and Letty's discipleship conference. That's your fruit. So when I say somebody can change the world, I mean it. It's not a joke. And your kids can change the world as well. They can make a difference. Encourage your child's relationship with Christ. She can't hide him any longer, so she makes a choice. She strengthens herself for the decision, Exodus 2, verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, waterproofed it. Then she placed the child in the basket. She put it among the reeds on the banks of the river Nile. Jochebed realized that she would not be able to keep her son out of the Nile, so she purposed to put her son into something that could protect him from the Nile. I just want you to be thinking about your own situation. Because we can do everything we want to shelter our children from the world, but ultimately you cannot keep them out of the world. Sooner or later, your children are going out into the world. So what you can do is lead your sons and daughters into the safety of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Put them in a safety environment. That doesn't mean shelter them, lock them in the basement of your house and never let them out. It means put them into a relationship with Jesus Christ and He'll always be their protection. He'll always go with them wherever they go. Because the presence of Christ within our children is more powerful than the world around our children. Lock on to that and let this be your kind of your passion 
for parenting. Since they must go out into the world, send them out with the safety of a relationship with the Lord. Far more important than the clothes you put on their back and the shoes you put on their feet is the faith that you're going to put into their heart. I'd say secondly, stay involved. Many parents start really strong, but something happens in the life of mom and dad and they check out for a while. You can't check out as a parent. You have to stay involved the whole course. If you check out, you're going to hurt your kids. Stay involved. Exodus 2, 4. So his sister, mom puts him in a basket, puts him in the Nile. So his sister, she's a teenager, Miriam. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to the little baby brother. So Miriam, Moses' sister, the mom says, I'm going back home. I can't stand to watch what's going to happen here. Crocodile infested Nile River. Currents. Eddie's, I'm going to go home. Miriam says, I'm going to stay and see what God's going to do. It's not just mom's faith now. It's Miriam's teenage faith coming into the story. And Miriam says, this is going to be fascinating. Let's see what God's going to do. And so Miriam is in her ghillie suit, hiding in the reeds, undercover, watching to see what God's going to do with, with the little baby. Verse 7. Uh, uh, sorry, verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent a female slave to get it. She opened, and she saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Now, I don't have time to give you every detail of the story, but as Jeremy said last week, when the biblical record makes a big deal about somebody's beauty, it's part of the story. When she had the baby, she said, this is no ordinary child. Every other version, you could, you, if you can read on this, some will say he was a beautiful child, he was a fair child, he was no ordinary child, he was a handsome child, he was a special child. They don't exactly know how to translate that statement. But you're going to get some clues because everybody else in the story of Moses going forward is going to say, what a hunk. Okay? That's just, that's it. If you go read the history books of Josephus, when this man grows up to be a general in Egypt and conquers Ethiopia, the princess of Ethiopia, while her city is being attacked, looks out at the attackers, sees Moses, the general in a chariot, says, oh my goodness, let's surrender. Wow. Seriously. Now, it wasn't just that he was physically handsome specimen. He's a great leader. Okay? You say, well, what am I supposed to do with that? If God gave you looks, you better use them for the Lord. If God gave you brains, use them for the Lord. If God gave you personality, use it for the Lord. Whatever God's given you, you need to realize, doesn't make you better than anybody else. You didn't create yourself. You are the way God designed you. Go with that, okay? And however he designs you, you have unique gifts and talents for making disciples and being a part of God's kingdom that other people don't have. You are unique and you are special. Figure out what your specialties are and use them for the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if you print for three hours in front of the mirror and you think you're God's gift to handsomeness and beauty, then, you know, where's Miss Susan? Volunteer to be a greeter and put a good face on this, okay? You know, we'll put you on the website or something and we'll use you for Jesus. Listen, if you've got personality, make yourself available to use your personality. You know, Jeff oozes personality. He's right where he needs to be, using his gifts for the Lord. If we ever say to Jeff, hey, Jeff, do you mind saying, Jeff's like, just turn me loose. Just turn me loose. Jeff, it's the way you're wired, but it's also God's gifting in your life. And every time you say yes, you're saying, yes, God, whatever you gave me, I'm willing to use for you. Some of you are numbers people. Some of you are serving people. Listen, some of you have a green thumb. Where's my green thumb guy? Right here. Listen, these flower beds look terrible, man. Winter's destroyed them. The earth's about to rebirth here in a few days with flowers and grass. Use your gifts for the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe a lot of you would like to help him do that, okay? And I'm being a little silly, but I'm not really. 
because you understand this is how it works. Some of you are incredibly nurturing and kind and loving people. Man, we'd love to have you in our children's ministry. Because if I know anything, I know that not, not every home is what it needs to be. And children ought to be able to come to church for an hour and a half on Sunday morning and be loved over the moon. If you can love, we've got a spot for you to use your love. You understand what I'm saying this morning? God wants to use your life. This little Moses is going to be used by God. Let me wrap it quick now. The little basket sails over to the bank. Pharaoh's daughter just happens to be bathing. There's not a lot of time to tell all the details. They consider the Nile River to be a fertility god. Pharaoh's daughter has no children. She's going to bathe in the, in the river. You know what I'm saying? There's maybe more than one meaning here. I don't think she just has B.O. that she's trying to wash off. She's probably there also worshiping, saying, you know, Nile River, please give me a baby. And God sails a baby up in a basket. Slave girl opens the basket. God pinches Moses' little baby bottom and he starts crying. And the heart of Pharaoh's daughter just melts. It is the most handsome little baby boy you've ever seen in your entire life. And he looks up with those big eyes and tears rolling down his cheeks. They lift the blanket. They see the circumcision. They say, ooh, it's a Hebrew baby. God sent you a Hebrew son. Isn't that weird? You're an Egyptian princess. And God the Egyptians' God answered with a Hebrew little boy. Well, that's strange, but nonetheless, now Miriam's faith. Miriam steps out of the bushes, verse number 7. His sister asked Pharaoh's daughter. Now listen, it takes guts to break cover and walk up to the princess. And the teenage girl says, shall I go and find a Hebrew woman that could nurse that baby for you? Yeah, do you know any good nannies? <laughs> I do. I do know a good nanny. And so she went and got the baby's mother, Jochebed, and brought her to Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, who's holding baby Moses, her baby. And Pharaoh's daughter says to the real mother, see, you couldn't make this up, people. You just couldn't make this up. So Pharaoh's daughter says to the real mother of Moses, hey, God gave me a baby. Wow, lucky you, princess. Uh, I'm a fantastic, I, I'm licensed in, in young childhood development. Uh, I'm a specialist in raising uh, little baby boys. And uh, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, princess, says, Okay, you take this baby home and nurse this baby for me. You be our nanny. And I will pay you. Now, some of you may want to pray a different way right now. Say, God, you've given me these kids to care for. Could you pay me a little for this? <laughs> They're very expensive. She got paid by Egypt to take care of the guy who's going to deliver the children from Egypt. <laughs> She's paying the mother to raise up the deliverer who will free the slaves from Egypt and destroy Egypt. This is a story that is... Un you just could not dream up this plot. It's amazing. So she... Weans, uh, she, she nurses her own baby and acts as a nanny to Pharaoh's daughter and, and gets paid wages for caring for her own baby. I bet she skipped all the way home. They had a worship service and she said, God, you know, now I have protection of the palace. Nobody can touch this house. I mean, I, I draw wages. I can move. I can come and go to the palace and show the baby off. I have access. So I want to say this, parents, exercise your influence. Let's fast forward the story. Verse 10. And when the child grew older, she came, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became, Moses became Pharaoh's daughter's son, officially. He's, he's weaned now. He's, he's a preschooler. She, he's handing him off. And she named him Moses because I drew him from the water. Now, that inevitable knock came at the door that Jochebed knew would come one day. When the princess would send for little baby Moses and say, okay, enough now, I can take it from here, bring him on to the, to the palace, and we'll raise him in all the ways of the prince of Egypt. And I know you have a lot of emotions about conversation like this, and I've told you our story many times. Uh, when our youngest, Jack, went to preschool the first day, uh, he clung to Susan's leg like an octopi. 
you couldn't peel him off. And as she stood outside the classroom door saying, okay, Jack, you've got to go to school and tried to pry his little arms off of her. He screamed, bloody murder. Don't make me go. Don't make me go. Don't, mommy, don't make me go. No, this is not. Ah. He just melted down, man. And in that moment, her heart melted. And inside, she said, I don't care if he ever learns to read or write. <laughs> Come on, baby, we're going home. He did learn to read. Are you here, Jack? He's home from, he's back there. I'm not sure he can write still, but he can read. What I'm saying is this. When they knocked on Jochebed's door, and there's the chariots, and there's the authorities, and they said, we're here for your boy. Can you imagine how her heart melted in that moment? As a parent, can you imagine somebody taking your kid away, and now they're going to be their kid, and now they have full influence over them from this point forward? That's terrifying. Now I have an imagination, so here's what I imagine happens. I imagine baby Moses said, Mommy, don't make me go. And I imagine she knelt down by little Moses and she said, Okay, baby, now listen, you've got to go with these people. Your new home is going to be in the palace. You're going to have lots of toys and you're going to have nice clothes and they're going to take really good care of you. And Mommy will check on you once in a while. But this other lady will be your mommy now. It's gut-wrenching. Now, Moses, I got something to say to you. Listen, son, we are God's people. They are not God's people. We are God's people. You are God's people. They are not God's people. I've taught you who God is. You remember who God is. You belong to God. We are God's people. You remember where you came from, okay? I'll always be here praying for you. You'll, you'll always have a place with us. But right now, you've got to go off to school with the Egyptians. That was a tough moment. Tough moment for mom and dad. Tough moment for little Moses. What I'm saying to you this morning is don't quit on your kids. You stay with them the whole way but gradually begin to let loose of them. Kids, what I'm saying to you is you have to own your own faith. Young adults, young, young, listen, maybe you're, maybe you're a parent and you've never owned your own faith. Today's the day to own your own faith. You'll have to come back next week and I'll finish the story of what happens to Moses, the prince of Egypt. I think you've heard enough this morning already, though, to know that you need to make some decisions about what it means to be distinctly Christian parents and maybe you're looking at me right now and you're thinking well pastor mine are all grown and now the house and have their own families yeah now your role changes you're still mom or dad but now you become a prayer warrior like you've never been before in your life if you've if you no you don't tell them what to do anymore no you don't express your opinions all the time no now what you do is you get down on your knees and you pray heaven down on your kids you shield your kids with prayer. You surround them with your prayer. And that's your new role at this stage in your life. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want to challenge you right now to make some decisions. Our job is not just to teach our children to walk and talk and read and write. Our mission from God is to teach our children to have faith in God. Their own faith. Faith that they own completely. To put their trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. So that they'll know they're never, never, ever alone. I want to have a season of prayer just for a few moments. We're, we're right on our time mark now. Beautifully done. Let's just have a few minutes of prayer before we end this service together. Would you pray with me right now all over the church, Christians praying that God would raise up a generation of young adults who own their faith and who are passionate about being disciples and disciple makers of Jesus Christ. And every mother and every father and grandparent and teenager 
hearing my voice this morning. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, if you've never owned your own decisions, maybe you were brought up in church, but you've never exercised your faith, then I want to challenge you this morning to call upon Jesus Christ. It's not enough to have mom and dad's borrowed faith. You've got to make it your own. If you've never called upon Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want you to do that this morning. Right here in this stillness, in this room, in this place we call the house of God, surrounded by people who love you. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, I want you to pray with me right now. Pray like this. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe you're everything the Bible described you to be. I believe you came and died on the cross and rose again to be my Savior. You paid for my sins. And I'm so thankful that you would do that for me. Thank you for loving me so much. God, I want to say to you that I'm sorry for my sin. And I confess to you that I'm a sinner and I need my sins forgiven. And God, I can't do that myself. So God, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. I accept what Christ did on the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection to be the payment for my sins. God, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me and wash me right now. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Jesus, I accept you as the king of my life right now. I am yours from this moment forward, and you are mine. God, I ask you to put your presence in my heart. Fill me with your spirit from this moment and for the rest of my life. Thank you for loving me, and thank you for saving me. All over the room right now, Christians are praying for their children. Whether they're in the nursery this morning or whether they're in the university, whether they're raising a family of their own right now, would you call each name to the Lord for just a moment? It won't take you but a few minutes. And you lift your children up to the throne of grace this morning. Children, if you're here, obviously you don't have little ones. I want you to pray the other way. You pray for your parents and your grandparents right now. They have a hard job. They're doing the best they can do. We're learning together as parents how to be the best parents, and that's part of what this morning's about. Maybe mom and dad hadn't always done the best and been the best, but we're trying this morning. Would you pray for us? Would you ask God to help us be the very best parents we can be? That's what we want too. If you feel like you're not loved as you should be, ask God to show us how to love you more. How to care for you better. God will speak to us about that. We believe that. If you're here this morning and you've never owned your own beliefs, we'll talk a little bit more about this next week. I want you to pray right now and say, God, would you help me take ownership? I kind of come to church and I believe there's a God, but I don't know, it just feels like I'm more of a renter than an owner. God, I want to be an owner. I want to own my own beliefs. I want to know what I believe and believe it with all my heart. I want courageous faith that can stand against persecution and persevere. God, we believe you're here. God, we believe you're with us right now. God, we believe you're with our friends in other countries right now struggling. You see, you hear our cries. Whatever needs you have in your family right now, I want you to lift that to the Lord. Whatever pops into your mind right now is a need in your family, you lift that to the Lord. Whatever's come into your heart right now, say, Lord, this is something we need in our home, something I need. As an adult, God, would you supply this for me? God, would you help me in this area? Just lift it to the Lord right now.
Some of you need a career change and a job upgrade. Pray for that right now. Say, God, show me the way. Show me the future you have for me. God, things are so, so tight financially. God, would you give me an upgrade? God, would you let the wealth of this world flow into my bank account so that I could be a generous giver to the kingdom of God, that I could be a blessing to others? God, make me a generous person. Give me wealth that I can do that. Father, I'm just praying over the whole church family right now. So many different needs here. God, you've heard our prayers. You've met with us here this morning. God, as we go out of this place to our homes, fill us so powerfully with your spirit. Be like we're walking on air, that we have a lightness of being, knowing we've all floated our burdens to you, and we are freshly empowered with faith that's courageous to go live in a world as representatives of your kingdom. God, may we represent you well this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.